Chapter 13 of The City of Fire by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 Billy, with that fine inner sense that some boys have, perceived that there was deep emotion of a silent sort between the minister and Mark, and he drifted away from them unnoticed, back toward the car. Billy, whispered Lynn, rising from the upper step in the shadow of the church. The boy turned with a quick, silent stride and was beside her. I couldn't help it, Miss Lynn. I really couldn't. There was something very important. Cart, that is, Cart needed me. I knew you'd understand. Yes, Billy, I understand. Somehow I knew you were with Mark. It's good to have a friend like you, Billy. She smiled wanly. Billy looked up, half proud, half ashamed. It's nothing, said Billy. I just had to. Cart, well, I had to. I know, Billy. Mark needed you. And Billy... If there's any trouble, any, any, that is, if Mark ever needs you, you'll stick by him, I know. Sure, said Billy, looking up with a sudden searching glance. Sure, I'll stick by him. And if there's anything, anything that ought to be done, why, I mean, anything we could do, Billy, you'll let us know? Sure, I will. There was utmost comprehension in the firm young voice. Billy kicked his heel softly into the grass by the walk, looking down embarrassedly. He half started on toward the car, and then turning back, he said suddenly, "'Why don't you go see Cherry, Miss Lynn?' "'Cherry?' she said, startled, her face growing white in the darkness. The boy nodded, stuffing his hands deep into his pockets and regarding her with sudden boldness. He opened his lips as if he would speak further, then thought better of it and closed them again firmly, dropping his eyes as if he were done with the topic." There was a bit of silence, then Lynn said gravely, "'Perhaps I will, and thank you, Billy.' Billy felt as though the balm of Gilead had suddenly been poured over his tired heart. "'Good-night,' he murmured, feeling that he had put his troubles into capable hands that would care for them as he would himself. There had been no word spoken between the minister and Mark as they went together toward the parsonage, but there had seemed to each to be a great clearing of the clouds between them, and a tender love springing anew with warm understanding and sympathy. Mark felt himself a boy again with the minister's arm across his shoulder, and a strong yearning to confide in this understanding friend swept over him. If there had been a quiet place with no one about just then, there is no telling what might have happened to change the story from that point on. But their silent intercourse was rudely interrupted by the voice of Laurie Shafton breaking in, "'Oh, I say, Mr. Severn, who did you say that man was that could fix cars? I'd like to call him up and see if he doesn't happen to have some bearings now. He surely must have returned by this time, hasn't he? I'd like to take these girls a spin. The moon is perfectly gorgeous. We could go in the ladies' car, only it is smaller, and I thought I'd ask your daughter to go along.' "'Oh,' said the minister suddenly, brought back into the world of trivial things. "'Why, this is Mr. Carter, Mr. Shafton. He can speak for himself.' Mark stood with lifted head and his princely look regarding the interloper with cold eyes. He acknowledged the introduction almost haughtily and listened to the story of the burnt-out bearings without a change of countenance, then said gravely, "'I think I can fix you up in the morning.' "'Not to-night?' asked the spoiled Laurie with a frown of displeasure. "'Not to-night,' said Mark with a finality that somehow forbade even a Shafton from further parley." Opal had regarded Mark from the vine-covered porch as he stood with bared head in the moonlight and clattered down on her tiny patent leather pumps to be introduced. 
She came and stood hanging pertly on Laurie Shafton's arm as if he were her private property, with her large, limpid eyes fixed upon the stranger, this prince of a man that had suddenly turned up in this funny little country dump. She put her giddy little tongue into the conversation, something about how delicious it would be to take a little ride tonight, implying that Mark might go along if he would fix up the car. She was dressed in a slim, clinging frock of some rich Persian gauzy silk stuff, heavy with beads and dull barbaric patterns, and girt with a rope of jet and jade. Her slim white neck rose like a stem from the transparent neckline, and a beaded band about her forehead held the fluffy hair in place about her pretty dark little head. She wore long jade earrings which nearly touched the white shoulders, and gave her the air of an Egyptian princess. She was very gorgeous, and unusual even in the moonlight, and she knew it, Yet this strange young man gave her one cold, scrutinizing glance and turned away. "'I'll see you again in the morning, Mr. Severn,' he said, and wringing the minister's hand silently, he went back across the lawn. The spell was broken, and the minister knew it would be of no use to follow. Mark would say no more of his trouble tonight. It was so that Lynn, coming swiftly from her shadow with troubled thoughts, came face to face with Mark. He stopped suddenly as if something had struck him. "'Oh, Mark!' she breathed softly, and put out her hand. He made a swift motion away from her and said quickly, "'Don't touch me, Marilyn. I'm not worthy.' Then quickly turning, he sprang into his car and started the engine. The minister stood in the moonlight, looking sadly after the wayward boy whom he had loved for years. Lynn came swiftly toward her father, scarcely seeing the two strangers. She had a feeling that he needed comforting.' but the minister, not noticing her approach, had turned and was hurrying into the house by the side entrance. "'Come on, girls, let's have a little excitement,' cried Laurie Shafton gaily. "'How about some music? There's a piano in the house, I see. Let's boom her up.' He made a sudden dive and swooped an arm intimately about each girl's waist, starting them violently toward the steps, forgetting the lame ankle that was supposed to make him somewhat helpless. The sudden unexpected action took Marilyn unaware, and before she could get her footing or do anything about it, she caught a swift vision of a white face in the passing car. Mark had seen the whole thing. She drew back quickly, indignantly, flinging the offending arm from her waist, and hurried after her father. But it was too late to undo the impression that Mark must have had. He had passed by. Inside the door she stopped short, stamping her white-shod foot with quick anger, her face white with fury, her eyes fairly blazing. If Laurie had seen her now, he would scarcely have compared her to a saint. To think that on this day of trouble and perplexity, this gay, insolent stranger should dare to intrude and presume. And before Mark! But a low-spoken word of her mother's reached her from the dining room, turning aside her anger. I hate to ask Lynn to take her into her room. Such a queer girl. It seems like a desecration. Lynn's lovely room. She had no right to put herself upon us, said the father in troubled tones. She is as far from our daughter as heaven is from the pit. Who is she, anyway? He merely introduced her as his friend Opal. Is there nothing else we can do? We might give her our room, but it would take some time to put it in order for a guest. There would be a good many things to move, and it would be rather awkward in the morning, cots in the living room. I suppose Lynn could come in with me and you sleep on a cot. Yes, that's exactly it. Do that. I don't mind. I suppose we'll have to, sighed the mother, for I know Lynn would hate it having a stranger among her pretty intimate things. Marilyn sprang up and burst into the dining room. Mother, did you think I was such a spoiled baby that I couldn't be courteous to a stranger, even if she was a detestable little vamp? 
You're not to bother about it any more. She'll come into my room with me, of course. You didn't expect me to sail through life without any sacrifices at all, did you, Motherie? Suppose I had gone to Africa, as I almost did last year. Don't you fancy there'd have been some things harder than sharing my twin beds with a disagreeable stranger? Besides, remember those angels unaware that the Bible talks about? I guess this is up to me, so put away your frets and come on in. It's time we had worship and ended this day. But I guess those two self-imposed borders of ours need a little religion first. Come on. She dropped a kiss on each forehead lightly and fled into the other room. What a girl she is, said her father tenderly, putting his hand gently on the spot she had kissed. A great blessing in our home, dear child. The mother said nothing, but her eyes were filled with a great content. Marilyn, throwing aside her hat and appearing in the front door, called pleasantly to the two outside. Well, I'm ready for the music. You can come in when you wish. They sauntered in presently, but Marilyn was already at the piano playing softly a bit from the angel chorus, a snatch of Handel's Largo, a Chopin Nocturne, one of Mendelssohn's songs without words. The two came in hilariously, the young man pretending to lean heavily on the girl and finding much occasion to hold her hands, a performance to which she seemed to be not at all averse. They came and stood beside the piano. "'Now,' said Opal gaily, when Marilyn came to the end of another nocturne, "'that's enough gloom. Give us a little jazz and Laurie and I'll dance a while.' Marilyn let her hands fall with a soft crash on the keys and looked up. Then her face broke up into a smile as if she had put aside an unpleasant thought and determined to be friendly. "'I'm sorry,' she said firmly. "'We don't play jazz, my piano and I. I never learned to love it, and besides, I'm tired. I've been playing all day, you know. You will excuse anything more, I'm sure. And it's getting late for Sabbath Valley. Did you have any plans for tonight?' Opal stared, but Marilyn stared back pleasantly, and Laurie watched them both. "'Why, no, not exactly,' drawled Opal. "'I thought Laurie would be hospitable enough to look me up a place. "'Where is your best hotel? Is it possible at all?' "'We haven't a sign of a hotel,' said Marilyn, smiling. "'Oh, horrors! Nothing but a boarding-house, I suppose. Is it far away?' "'Not even a boarding-house. Oh, heavens! Well, where do you stop, then?' "'We don't stop. We live,' said Marilyn, smiling. "'I'm afraid the only thing you can do, unless you decide to go back home tonight, "'is to share my room with me.' I have twin beds, you know, and can make you quite comfortable. I often have a college friend to stay with me for a few weeks. Opal stared round-eyed. This was a college girl, then, hidden away in a hole like this. Not even an extra spare room in the house. Oh, my gracious, she responded bluntly. I'm not used to rooming with someone, but it's very kind of you, I'm sure. Marilyn's cheeks grew red and her eyes flashed, but she whirled back to her keyboard and began to play, this time a sweet old hymn, and while she was playing and before the two strangers had thought of anything to say, Mr. Severn came in with the book in his hand, followed by his wife, who drew a small rocker and sat down beside him. Marilyn paused and the minister opened his Bible and looked around on them. "'I hope you'll join us in our evening worship,' he said pleasantly to the two guests, and then, while they still stared, he began to read, "'Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me,' on through the beautiful chapter.' It was as Greek to the strangers who heard and did not comprehend, and they looked about amazed on this little family with dreamy eyes all listening as if it meant great treasures to them. It was as if they saw the Severns for the first time and realized them as individuals, as a force in the world, something complete in itself, a family that was not doing the things they did, 
not having the things considered essential to life, nor trying to go after any of the things that life had to offer, but living their own beautiful lives in their own way without regard to the world, and actually enjoying it. That was the queer part about it. They were not dull nor bored. They were happy. They could get out from an environment like this if they choose, and they did not. They wanted to stay here. It was incredible. Lorry got out his cigarette case, selected a cigarette, got out his matchbox, selected a match, and all but lit it. Then somehow there seemed to be something incongruous about the action, and he looked around. No one was seeing him but Opal, and she was laughing at him. He flushed, put back the match on the cigarette, and folded his arms, trying to look at home in this strange new environment. But the girl Marilyn's eyes were far away, as if she were drinking strange knowledge at a secret invisible source— and she seemed to have forgotten their presence. Then the family knelt. How odd! Knelt down, each where he had been sitting, and the minister began to talk to God. It did not impress the visitors as prayer. They involuntarily looked around to see to whom he was talking. Laurie reddened again and dropped his face into his hands. He had met Opal's eyes, and she was shaking with mirth, but somehow it affected him rawly. Suddenly he felt impelled to get to his knees. He seemed conspicuous reared up in a chair, and he slid noiselessly to the floor with a wrench of the hurt ankle that caused him to draw his brows in a frown. Opal, left alone in this room full of devout backs, grew suddenly grave. She felt almost afraid. She began to think of Saybrook Inn and the man lying there stark and dead. The man she had danced with but a week before. Dead. And for her. She cringed and crouched down in her chair till her beaded frock swept the polished floor in a little tinkly sound that seemed to echo all over the room, and before she knew it her fear of being alone had brought her to her knees. To be like the rest of the world, to be even more alike than anybody else in the world, that had always been her ambition. The motive of her life now brought her on her knees because others were there, and she was afraid to sit above lest their god should come walking by, and she should see him and die. She did not know she put it that way to her soul, but she did, in the secret recesses of her inner dwelling. Before they had scarcely got to their knees, and while that awkward hush was yet upon them, the room was filled with the soft sound of singing, started by the minister, perhaps, or was it his wife? It was unaccompanied. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. Even Laurie joined an erratic high tenor humming in on the last verse, and Opal shuddered as the words were sung. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the dark and point me to the skies. Death was a horrible thing to her. She never wanted to be reminded of death. It was a long, long way off to her. She always drowned the thought in whatever amusement was at hand. The song died away just in time, or Opal might have screamed. She was easily wrought up. And then the strange anomaly of a girl— her young hostess turned to her with a natural smile, just as if nothing extraordinary had been going on, and said, "'Now shall we say good-night and go upstairs? I know you must be tired after your long ride, and I know father has had a hard day and would like to get the house settled for the night.' 
Opal arose with the wild idea of screaming and running away, but she caught the twinkle of Lori's eyes and knew he was laughing at her. So she relaxed into her habitual languor, and turning haughtily requested, "'Would you send your maid to the Kyar for my bag, please?' Before anyone could respond, the minister stepped to the door with a courteous, "'Certainly,' and presently returned with a great blue leather affair with silver mountings, and himself carried it up the stairs. At the head of the stairs, Marilyn met him, and put her head on his shoulder, hiding her face in his coat, and murmured, "'Oh, Daddy!' Severn smoothed her soft hair and murmured gently, "'There, there, little girl, pray, pray. Our father knows what's best.' But neither of them were referring to the matter of the unwelcome guests. Mrs. Severn was solicitous about asking if there was anything the guests would like, a glass of milk or some fruit, and Opal declined curtly, made a little mow at Shafted and followed up the stairs. "'Well,' she said rudely as she entered the lovely room and stared around, "'so this is your room.' Then she walked straight to the wall on the other side of the room, where hung a framed photograph of Mark at twelve years old, Mark with all the promise of his princely bearing already upon him. "'So this is the perfect icicle of a stunning young prince that was down on the lawn, is it? I thought there was some reason for your frantic indifference to men. Is his name Billy or Mark?' Laurie said it was either Billy or Mark. He wasn't sure which. End of chapter 13